City Limits. Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. Okay, we're on air, how are we? are on air um, at City Limits and... Uh, and good morning, uh, Kevin. Morning, morning, morning. That's, um, that's Eugenia <laughs> Zubchenko over there who's saying good morning, Jimmy. You're back, you were off ill last week, you're okay again? Yeah, I had a terrible flu. Yeah, it yeah. took a full week to pass, it's so oh. annoying. Most of them take even longer, so you're lucky in some ways. But, <laughs> I mean, it's like someone falling out of a window and they only broke their leg. Gee, they were yeah. lucky. Yeah. Well, you're going um, to still hear me sniffling all through today's show. So. Oh, right. That's beautiful. That'll do the, do yep. the listen to the Set world. Set a bit good. of uh, winter atmosphere yep. for our listeners. And unfortunately, Meg uh, Kimber couldn't be here today. She's uh, got a, well, not sure, but um, and she's, she's away. We, well, I think it's a family think, situation with her mother. But um, so, so Gab Reed stepped into the breach. Wave. She waved, in case listeners want to know. She just waved beautifully. Uh, I'm Kevin Healy. It is City Limits. It's the third Wednesday of the month, and therefore it's a housing day. And in the second half of the program, Shane McGrath from the Housing with the Aged Action Group is going to come in. And they had a, a conference of older people about housing and residential situations a few days ago, so we'll report on that. And, of course, we can, he can report on both the state and federal budgets that have happened since the last time we had housing on this station. And... Um, that should take about a minute and a half to cover both. Um, there wasn't exactly uh, yeah. heaps in it. but uh, It'll be interesting to see what he says anyway. Well, it will, won't it? Who wants a cup of tea? Uh, please, yeah. No, no. I bought a third cup in in case Gabby, she just gave a nod. <laughs> yeah, there you go. But uh, I thought we'd kick off with, because uh, I've mentioned, a few, I think, well, I think we've got a fair idea of in this year's state election the way that as it gets closer and closer, the Murdoch mm-hmm. media, and particularly the um, the Herald Sun, is going to support the government to the hilt, um, as they have since the last election when they realised the Victorian people got it wrong and they've got to try and correct the mistake. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had never quite forgiven us for that. But, of course, with the federal election also looming and, the, uh, and a, a budget that was aimed toward it last week uh, and pulling the wool over people's eyes, I suggest... Um, the it's it's a bit hard to know where the Finn Review is going to go in terms of who it's going to support in this election because just in the past week there's been two two headlines in its editorials. One is Labor is ramping up active hostility to business. I mean, how could anyone have hostility to business? <laughs> Especially it's a, Labor. It's devastating, isn't it? That is a devastating when you think about it. The <laughs> act of hostility to by God. And then just this Monday again, the headline was Coalition Business Must Expose Labor Policy Deceits. Okay. Eugenia, I know you're you're a pretty I'm smart confused. young woman. Um, <laughs> <laughs> any ideas which way they might go in the election? <laughs> I'll leave that got, one up to our listeners. Got the odd thought. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I do want to come back to something about that paper in a minute too, but I'll, I, no, just we have to do the Herald Sun justice as usual. <laughs> and of course, and we're getting. A, you've got a beautiful photo of the royal couple. We're getting to be close. There. We're getting close to the big wedding. Yeah. And uh, it's great to know. And hang on up. Look, I've got to, I'm going to have to move. I've just one of the most important items from the Herald Sun fell to the floor. I've got to oh, go gosh. and get it. Hang on a Gosh, no! Quickly, pick yes, it up from there. Quick. That's not where it belongs. 
<laughs> I knew there were two. These were both in the same day, actually, so different pages, so just all over the place. I have to cover it. In fact, I'm a bit disturbed, and um, Gab, I'm, I'm sure you would be disturbed by this. Um, when um, when his big brother got married a while ago to a woman who's become something of a royal incubator um, and keeps producing new little mouths for the British taxpayers to feed, um, uh, they said it was the wedding of the century. Remember that? No. They did. They, they used to promote it on telly. The wedding of the century. And now I, watch, I was watching one of my... Um, Guilty Pleasure's new tricks last night and an ad came on about the wedding and they're going to televise it all and they said it's the wedding of the century. I mean... <laughs> Not good at maths. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Well, it depends on how you measure the century. I guess maybe it, it started at the start of this year. Mm. Oh, yeah, that's you know, right. That, that old, you know, numerical decimal calendar. Mm, it's kind yeah, of outdated. Yeah, okay, okay. Well, I said, I'm not really confused at all. <laughs> but anyway, these are really – these. I mean, when you think about the news and, and the fact that the rally of 120,000 workers last week got about three paragraphs in the sun and all it was about was the fact that it disrupted Melbourne for the day and everything else, uh, these are the items that really need coverage. If the Queen gives her grandson, Prince Harry, the title of the Duke of Sussex as a wedding gift – then his bride, Meghan Markle, will become the first Duchess of Sussex. And it gives you the whole history. The previous Duke was married twice in the late 1700s and 1800s, but his father, King George III, did not approve, so his children were considered illegitimate mm. and the title was not passed on. But it points out that you know, the Queen gives these kids um, a dukedom as a wedding present when they get married. It's lovely, isn't it? So she'll mm. become... And oh, this, this bit's really important, I think... Um, uh, in recent times, commoners' wives of commoner wives of British royal. She's a commoner, isn't she? I love have that ta- word. Yes, have, t- have taken <laughs> so, the t- so contemporary. <laughs> it's lovely, isn't it? Have taken the title of Royal Highness, meaning Markle is likely to be the first to be styled as Her Royal Highness, the Duchess of Sussex. Alternatively, she may also call herself Her Royal Highness, Princess Henry of Wales, but not Princess Megan. Now that's important, isn't it? Because it's good. It's good to get all this information. Right. Very confusing. King George III, of course, was stone mad. Mm. The bloke they mentioned. There was a, in fact, I'm going to do an anecdote now, but um, the, when he died, the, the poet laureate of the time, who was a dreadful poet, wrote this glowing thing called The Vision of Judgment or A Vision of Judgment. And, and Byron at the time um, wrote a satirical response called A Vision or The Vision. I can't think which was which now. But in the, in, the, in the satirical response, he referred to him as that mad, 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 mad king. Um, that, was, <laughs> that was George III. So there you are. Well, is, was George III the one that ate a lot of apricots or something? Something percolating up through my memory from history class. Yeah, maybe. I'm not sure of that. No, I can't. Okay. No, no, no. Your that history was... might be better than mine. <laughs> well, only for obscure facts, apparently. <laughs> oh, no, not necessarily. Well, I, I thought. Think that, I think there was one of the kings who got themselves in trouble for eating too much stone fruit of one variety or another. Ah, right, <laughs> I can't remember yeah. which king or which fruit. Well, maybe he wasn't mad. He was just stoned, yeah. <laughs> anyway, this is another really important one. Buckingham Palace has released an image of the handwritten document in which the Queen gives her consent for Prince Harry to marry Meghan. Isn't that wonderful? The instrument of consent image was released on Saturday, a week before, etc. Under British law, the first six people in line of succession to the throne must obtain permission. So, lucky. Has she ever denied it? What if she'd said no? Yeah. Would have stuffed up the wedding of the century. (laughs) 
the uh, the network sort of had to retract all those ads that they've been playing. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, she said yeah, so that's good news. Yeah. Um, but we'll move on to that. But that, I mean, that is getting coverage more coverage than things that actually matter in life. Yeah, I don't I haven't even heard anything about it. When is the wedding to This weekend, I think. Next weekend, right. Like already. I think they're all televising it live. In fact, I don't cuz I don't know, I think it is this weekend, but I know Channel 7 I heard at 4 o'clock they're going to go over and show you the guests arriving. Mm. And then at 7 o'clock the ceremony. So that'll mm. be beautiful, won't it? Nice 3 hours. Imagine getting watching. there for it, sitting in a church for 3 hours waiting for that lock mm, to turn up. You bored out of your mind. <laughs> Anyway, that's... Uh, it's a nice church, though. Yeah, have a look at the yeah, architecture. Right. But back to um, serious matters. In the Oh, by the way, just last night's Channel... I don't know why I was on it, but I did. Channel 7 News. I sometimes watch it to see how bad it is before I go to SBS at 6.30. But last night it had about eight items and up to sport before it had anything about the massacre in Gaza. And I thought... Maybe that's a bit more important than some of the stories they're covering mm. about things, accidents in Melbourne streets and things. So mm. Anyway, that just struck me. Um, I discovered last week, though, Gab, you know, Gab, I left here to go straight up to the rally mm. and I marched through the city and we marched around and got ended up at Flinders Street and um, I wheeled my bike all the way <laughs> trying to avoid hitting people with it. And I thought I was doing a decent thing. And I th- actually, I thought, gee, good on you, ACTU. This is a terrific rally. It's huge. It's wonderful. Um, good on you, unions. We're coming out. Bloody wonderful. Picked up the Financial Review next morning and discovered I had been participating in a crime. I had been duped. <laughs> for, for wheeling your bike through the city? No, no, no. You can't imagine how angry I am. The headline was that the stevedoring companies said all these workers had walked off the job with unprotected industrial action, they were all illegal, mm. all illegal. Yeah. And the whole thing was, and in fact, this is unprotected. the bit Unprotected? What is protected industrial action? It's when the court allows you. It's, and when you the only, Queen oh, says you can. When you get right. permission that's to right. strike. Oh, that's lovely. <laughs> you can, and it's, you know, under, I mean, the, the right to strike no longer exists. It, it now, uh, uh, from the Reith legislation in 96, backed up by work choices, which Reith tied one hand behind unions' backs and Howard tied the other. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, it protected deduction is times during, in, during a negotiating period, there's mm. points where you can take industrial action. But other than that, there's no point where you can take legal industrial action anymore. Oh, so it's just absolutely hopeless. See. But the worst thing I discovered, this is where I really got angry, the bloke from the Mines and Metals Profits Association or whatever said that, in fact, what, what the action last Wednesday had done was make Australia make Australia a much, much less desirable place to invest and make profit. And I thought, and for overseas, you know, overseas investments, and I thought, here I, here I was duped into marching. All I was doing <laughs> was, was affecting Australia's role in in, 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 in attracting investment. And, I mean, isn't that <laughs> dreadful, being dreadful. duped like that? I mean, you really didn't think about that when you made that decision, did, did you? Not, I did not, I did not. We time. will continue to listen to 3CR. We're constantly duping the community. <laughs> well, we, actually, we showed the power of 3CR or the power of this program because just before we finished, we advertised the rally and said to people, get down there, and 120,000 turned up. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the power of city limits. Think about it. Amazing. <laughs> it is, isn't it? <laughs> actually, there's another one. I'll tell you, have you heard this? this I'm going to do anecdotes now, but the story of... Uh, uh, of the Nestle strike at the Swiss Embassy a few years ago, mm-hmm. um, we had, we promoted that there was a strike. The Nestle workers up in Wangaratta or somewhere in the bush, 
uh, were coming to Melbourne to the Swiss Embassy to protest about some industrial situation. And so we pushed it hard on the program. It was when Doug and I were doing it, and uh, we pushed it hard, and we headed down, but it was absolutely pouring rain. And he went on public transport. I actually rode my bike down, and the embassy was in, a, in an office building in St Kilda Road. So we got down there, saturated, saturated, and went up, and on the first floor wherever the embassy was just to check it out, and it was locked for the day, so obviously they knew the workers were coming, so they, <laughs> they'd locked the things, so they weren't even open. Mm-hmm. But the weather was so bad, the Commonwealth cops turned up, and they sat in their cars staring at us, and we <laughs> stared back at them, and no one else turned up, not even the workers. <laughs> <laughs> and all I got, I ended up in bed for two weeks with the flu, that's true. Oh, no. Yeah, and... <laughs> Again. And I thought, yeah. this is the power of city limits. <laughs> <laughs> so there you are. Anyway, I thought I'd tell that little story. Good on you. Did you see where, um, see where this bloke in a, new, in a New South Wales Liberal Party branch, uh, this is one that we could perhaps, if we moved up there, could, could join, um, a bloke called George Popovsky, who's the president of the branch, he wants to uh, bring back flogging. Did you see that? <laughs> flogging. Um, yep, yep. He. Um, it's, not, it's not what I expected you to say. He, yeah. wants, <laughs> he, wants, he wants to straighten out the law and order system by handing sentences, sentencing powers to the panel of 20 members of the public so the public actually decides on the sentencing, not the judge, <coughs> with no more than 30% from the legal fraternity. Popovsky, who authored, authored the motion, also wants reintroduction of corporal punishment, arguing it was the fairest form of retribution <laughs> because we all feel the same pain. Well, we probably don't feel as much as the bloke getting flogged. <laughs> but anyway, he proposed 10 lashes for theft of a T-shirt. What? Yeah. Well, I think the biggest theft in T-shirts is the theft of the workers in Bangladesh who make them. Who get, um, mm-hmm. So if you got all the bosses and gave them 10 lashes, I wouldn't mind so much. A 1,000 lashes for stealing a car, 2,000 if the vehicle is damaged, 5,000 lashes for punching a police officer. Oh, what God. about um, what about Commonwealth Bank's alleged misdemeanours? How many lashes would that be? Uh, no, they, they suffer enough. <laughs> and 20,000 lashes for murder. That's so. I mean, it often happens in cases where we, in white-collar crime where they say, look, the defendant has suffered so much by reputation, that's enough. Whereas working people have no reputation to lose, unfortunately. Right. So we all feel the same pain. Just some yeah. Feel yeah. more pain than others. Yeah, that's right. Yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, this, um, he, he shows great compassion here because he said they should be delivered at 10 lashes per hour every hour from 9am to 5pm with an hour for lunch. So they get an hour off for lunch for the flogging. <laughs> and um, and the dub- it'd be doubled for second-time offenders, etc., etc., etc. But he's uh, he's good, isn't he? He's, he sounds uh, yeah. He also wants. Who's this guy? Um, he's he's the president of the of, of the Carlingford branch of the Liberal Party in New South Wales, oh um, and he also wants a ban on immigration and refugees. That's surprising. Um, because the country's broken, the roads are chockers. That's got plenty to do with refugees. <laughs> Uh, All those refugees uh, driving their driving their SUVs around the country roads. <laughs> so there you are. Now here we have a a minister. Um, now no one can compete, I think, with Peter Dutton when you talk about you know, great minds in the in the ministry. But I think Conchetta Ferrante Wells comes up there somewhere, and she's now said that she. Um, she refused to say whether she could survive on the $40 a day dole, 
but she attempted to duck and weave through a barrage of questions about the unemployment benefits during question time. She maintained the usual line, the best form of welfare is a job. And when pressed on whether she could manage on the allowance, she said, I'm actually, do, I'm actually in a job, so therefore I do not need new start. <laughs> See, it's a very simple answer. And um, so anyway, she, that's good, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. So she, she, didn't, she didn't say she could live on it, though, which is <coughs> interesting because some of them, most of them do. Yeah, did you see, I note with interest that Julia Banks and Michaelia Cash, mm. aptonyms, both their surnames, were both saying they could live on that. No, <laughs> not yet, that's right. They know something we don't know. Mm. That's what we could put them to the test anyway. But oh, when I saw that really news, I was a bit much. like, mm, Banks, hey? Mm, <laughs> banks, Cash, mm. that's right, yeah, yeah. Well, of course they can. Yeah, they're okay, they're lovely people, aren't they? Now, You'll be pleased to know, this is a, um, a wonderful quote. The law must be equal to all people. Isn't that wonderful? And that's from Clive Palmer. <laughs> yes. He's back in court. He's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a real litigant, the old Clive, but he's back in court suing his insolvencies company over the collapse of his Townsville nickel minery. So, so the fact that you didn't pay the workers and all the other things that went around it, um, but he's suing the... The, the insolvency specialists, because they're, they're, they're planning to um, amalgamate with a, another company, and he says that's a way to hide the fact that they're going to take all his money off him, with there's none there anyway, but that's beside the point. Um, and his opinion has been done so partners could avoid liability against my action, because his action is to sue them for stuffing up. And it's time that Australians were defended against this industry. Jeez, doesn't he care for all mm. of us? It's an interesting yes. turning of the tables. Yes, and the law should be equal to all people. He's a good, <laughs> it's a good example of that. Which probably the workers who didn't get their money wish it was pretty equal. But uh, again, it's just me being awful, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Now there's a bloke called Jeff Raby who was uh, a, the former Australian ambassador to China, and he wrote. A, he's written a piece this week, just yesterday, and well, he wrote it. I don't think he wrote it yesterday. It was published yesterday in which he talks about Australia's current relationship with China and how it's really important at the moment that we maintain good relationships with China, but the government has been a freeze. In terms of Australia's geopolitical interests, the freeze on our relationship with China could not have come at a worse time. It was once widely understood in Canberra, but apparently no longer, that we need to have good and close relations with China, not just for trade and commercial reasons, but because China is critical to all the major international issues of interest to Australia, and none more so than peace and stability in Northeast Asia. And then he goes on to point out you know, the sort of things that Julie Bishop's been saying and, and Turnbull and Co. in the past year or so. And he says, Foreign Minister Bishop has not visited China in more than two years. She angered China by making the most strident public comments on the South China Sea of any foreign minister. And last year, in an utterly bizarre speech in Singapore, said China was not fit for regional leadership. If the role China is now playing to resolve tensions on the Korean peninsula and possibly removing North Korea's nuclear capability is not leadership, it is difficult to find another word to describe it. And he says that um, we need a foreign minister who is steeped in history and geopolitics, who lives and breathes the issues and who has the grasp of the profoundly challenge, profound challenges Australia faces in the rapidly evolving new world order being shaped in large measure by China. Now, this is the most awful bit. You're going to be shocked at this. He says, the Prime Minister needs to replace Miss Bishop with someone better equipped with the demands of the job. 
<laughs> Get rid of Julie. Isn't Someone who'll shut up. <laughs> yeah, but then again, then he goes, then he, he then he goes off the rails at this point. His his conclusion is totally off the rail. Up till then, I support him on those points, but he says, fortunately, he has a wealth of talent and experience within his cabinet. Both Josh Pride and Berg and Greg Hunt have extensive experience in foreign policy. I'd feel pretty confident if they were running our foreign affairs. Um, And then he says, and having each worked for many years in Alexander Downer's office, one of Australia's, this is the bit where he really goes off the rails, one of Australia's most effective foreign ministers. (laughs) Alexander. (laughs) Part of a dynasty. So there. And... um, there's a. Uh, have you got anything to say, by the way? I'm just raving on here. <laughs> I was reading uh, on the tram here. I was reading about the um, the uh, new tax plan and how apparently two thirds of the benefits of it um, have been shown to probably flow towards men rather than women. Oh, go which on. Which is an interesting, um, interesting unint- unintended or intended consequence. <laughs> Yeah, well, yes. <laughs> Just because men are, are, you know, so many more men are controlling the major companies and the um, uh, are the high income earners that the tax plan benefits. Well, that's right. What um, do you think of that? Well, I think uh, I think that's the case. I mean, if, if women <laughs> if women are getting lower pay, if they're like, yeah. less likely to be in high paid positions, exactly. then they're not going to benefit from a tax cut that's going to benefit the rich. Yeah, felt like a felt like a. Um, discriminated against minority for a few seconds there on a tram. Oh, you wouldn't, would you? <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe that. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that is that is the case. And, of course, the Liberal Party this week threw another woman out. I mean, anyone in the Liberal Party is much chopped. But, uh, mm. you know, once again, they've just shown that they're their so-called commitment to... Well, they, they don't give one, do they? Sorry, they don't have one. They, they, say, <laughs> that, they say people have to be selected on their, on on their, their quality. qualities. Yeah, yeah. Their qualities, that's right. So if women are good enough, they'll get there. That's mm. the yeah, that's, yeah, that's it. We just have it. to pull our socks up, hey? So hey, it's girl. obvious in the Liberal Party that men are a lot better, that's all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's bloody clear. Mm. Um, now, this was one that... Um, I thought was particularly important this week. Uh, after the, given the bank inquiry and you know bank and cash and things we've just been talking about, um, you'll be it was tucked away in the budget. But um, you'll be pleased to know that the funding for ASIC, which is the regulator, which would um, take action against the banks and, and over you know anything that comes out of the Royal Commission. Um, their, but their funding was slashed in the budget. Mm. Um, <laughs> staff numbers were slashed by 30 investigators. That's so clever. Uh, now, <laughs> this, is, this is the body. So I, I guess if, you've got, if you cut the mob that's going to per- prosecute them, yeah. then the chances of prosecution become a lot less. Not that the government would have that in mind. I wouldn't no, think, no, of course not. No, it's but it's, fiscal, uh, fiscal responsibility. The timing just seems extraordinary, doesn't yeah. it? That um, as That's the terrible. banking thing is likely to put an incredible amount of work on these bodies, you slash the funding for them. Yeah. Now, surely, I mean, they, I can't see. There would be no sinister reason in this. There's no, got to be an, not. got to be an economic, financial, fiscal reason for it all. No. Um, Makes me think all, of Cash Twenty Two for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does, doesn't it? There's been a, there's a few of those around, and this is one of them. Um, it also cut the office of the public pros- the funding budget for the uh, office of the director of public prosecutions, which mm. of course would, in fact, before it gets to the other points, 
recommend or not mm. prosecution in these mm. cases. And it, it means there's been a 23% reduction in staff at the DPP from 2010. So, again, a body that you're going to rely upon to take action over all these matters. And I don't think they were liberally funded to start with, were they? Um, no, presumably not. <laughs> and, and, uh, but the, the good news is there's, there's no mention, even tucked away, found out later on, of being a cut in the funding for the um, Jackboots Commission into the unions, the, mm. uh, the, commission, oh. the commission that, that keeps trying to prosecute building workers. Mm. The good news there is that, uh, that they haven't been cut. No, because, of course, we have to be working towards housing affordability, right, Kevin? Well... Yes. By not paying the workers. That's you know, right. That's, that's the right. only solution. That's right. Mm. Well, a couple of things we're going to raise when, um, when Shane gets here, in fact, is just that point that you've got, you've got an industry that keeps crying out that we, you know, they really want housing affordability for people. And in recent, recent months, the, the prices have gone down slightly, and now they're all complaining and saying, isn't it terrible and it's shocking and it's bad <laughs> news for the housing industry. The very people who say, we, you'd think that if they say, look, we want housing to be affordable people, that for goodness sake, um, when it goes down, they'd be excited about it. But Shane's just walked into the studio. He can maybe answer that question. We, um, <laughs> you might have to it. <laughs> well, Shane, we're just commenting on the fact that, that as house prices have dropped slightly in recent months, the very people who've been screaming out for so long... Um, that's microphone being moved. The, the people who've been moved around, been carrying on for so long that... We need housing affordability. The industry players who cry out that housing has to become affordable start complaining when houses prices go down that it's not good for business. It's bad. I mean, one would have thought they'd be celebrating if it, it's, it's getting more affordable. Shane. It's like there's some sort of contradiction in their ideology, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, you picked that one up, did you? <laughs> and Shane McGrath, of course, is from the Housing with Age Action Group. He's just wandered into the studio. We're going to talk housing. And, in fact, we'll do it up. We'll take a quick break and then talk housing with Shane. OK, back on City Limits. And Shane McGrath, as I said, come into the Housing with Age Action Group. Shane, you're... Um, um, well, you must have news from Hague. There was a, it was a meeting a couple of days ago, wasn't there? A, a conference or something of people? Uh, well, just the other day we had a, we had co-hosted a forum with um, Consumer Action Law Centre and CODA about... Uh, how to make more effective complaints to the regulator, to consumer affairs about problems in retirement villages and other kinds of retirement housing. Um, because it, it seems like often people's experience is that those complaints don't don't seem to be very useful. They don't get the results that they're looking for. Um, so we had a couple of consumer affairs staff as well as some of the lawyers from Calkin to, to talk about how to make those complaints more effective. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess overall I would say the vibe was that those complaints aren't going to get much more effective and that what we need is mm-hmm. to really be lobbying for some, some changes in the way that the industry is regulated. Uh, one, of our, one, of the, uh, one of the retirement village residents who turned up uh, suggested that there's no way that the industry will get any better until there's prospects of real jail time for operators. Wow. Um, so <laughs> made me feel good because it made my own suggestions seem so much more reasonable <laughs> in comparison. <laughs> well, yeah. they could. Well, that New South Wales Liberal Party branch we were talking about earlier might want to flog them. Um, oh, flog them. Oh, that's true. That's, yes, they could give them a flogging. But so in the end, what came out of it? I mean, where does it go from here then? Um, well, some of the, those groups that I'm talking about, so HAG... Uh, Consumer Action Law Centre, CODA, and Residents of Retirement Villages, Victoria. Just sorry. big people who CODA is. Oh, sorry, the Council on the Aged. Yep. 
um, have been working together for some time around reform to the retirement village industry. Um, HAG in particular has a retirement housing working group and interested anyone who's interested is, is very welcome to contact us and get involved. Maybe I'll give out the, the number at the end of the show if you want to give us a call. Yep. Um, so there's a lot of campaigning and lobbying that's happening, especially in the lead up to the state election about what, what might mm-hmm. be needed. So you probably know there was a inquiry, Senate inquiry last year into retirement housing in Victoria. Uh, amongst its many recommendations was that there should be a review of the Retirement Villages Act, which at the moment isn't a very strong piece of legislation, uh, as many people who have problems in retirement villages have learnt. And th- there's still no commitment from the government to that review. So one of the one of the big things that we'd be pushing is that. Uh, another big thing that we're pushing is an ombudsman for the industry. So uh, at the moment, the, the kinds of enforcement mechanisms or dispute resolution mechanisms that are available if you're in retirement housing, especially a retirement village, are just terribly weak. Um, it's very difficult to get to VCAT. The list that deals with you is quite complicated and difficult to navigate. Um, an ombudsman, we think, and our members are, are very strongly in favour of this, would really help resolve a lot of those issues just quicker, with less fuss, less kind of antagonism, just make it mm. make it work better. Mm. Um, what are the kind of issues that residents commonly face? Uh, I mean, there's a whole lot across the board. If you need the operator of a retirement village to fix something and they don't agree that it's their responsibility to fix it or, or won't admit it's their responsibility to fix it, um, the the process to try and enforce their obligation to fix it is extremely onerous. Yeah. Um, so I have a client, for example, whose roof has been leaking for, for almost a year now uh, because of some problems with a drain over her unit. Well, that's what she thinks. Um, but the owner has basically said, no, it's not the drain. And unless she can stump up two and a half grand for a, a building report that will satisfy the tribunal, it's going to be extremely hard for her to get any orders that mm. are going to compel him to do that. Um, a lot of the issues that come up in all kinds of retirement housing, whether it's a retirement village, a res park or whatever, is about what happens to your unit when you either move into residential care or when you pass away. Um, the costs that are extracted from you, from you or from your estate, um, whether your unit just sits there vacantly while your, your family continues to pay rent for it on for, for mm. years in some cases while you're trying to sell it, um, things like that. Mm. And, and there's there are a strange relationship between those places and, and the sort of contracts they have because in, in many ways you you're buying or you're paying but ultimately they still own the property in many ways as well is there's, there's there's these conflicts involved there's a whole range of arrangements so that's often true um, I mean one thing that also people often don't realize when they move into a retirement village or something similar is that you know they've lived in a house they've understood it to be an investment like a house is they've expected it to increase in value mm. and it just won't like may, maybe it appreciates somewhat, but not nearly in the same way that a, a freehold house that you own is. Uh, and beyond that, it's very likely that your contract is going to extract some deferred management fees, um, which <laughs> often often are very large and definitely are going to consume uh, any capital gain that you might have made otherwise. Mm. Yeah, that's right. uh, and often people don't understand that when they move in because, as mm. you say, the contracts are confusing. So if there is any 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 increase in value, it's going to go up in fees anyway. So yeah, um, I mean, one thing I think it was Catherine from Kelk said at the forum the other day was that people are generally told that they should consult a lawyer before they sign a retirement village contract, um, and that's a good idea. But you know, the lawyer just looks at it and says, "Yep, that's a that's a contract, all right." <laughs> uh, what people often would benefit more from is getting good financial advice about yeah. whether it's a, a good decision planning. for them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. consult a lawyer or a psychiatrist or something. <laughs> one, one of the above. Um, the um, the, in the budget, the federal budget gave some money to aged care, um, keeping yeah. people in their homes, etc. Although when you look at the figure, if you look at the waiting list, 
and you look at the number of people who can benefit from the extra money, there's still a huge waiting list of people who won't be served. Well, that's uh, true. But can we just for a second, let's just talk through all the all the announcements about housing in the federal government. It won't take long. Just no, bear won't. with me for a second. <laughs> uh, that's that's everything. I think we've, I think we've covered it now. Um, the... Uh, you're right. So the, I think it was 14,000 extra home care packages. And there's um, 110,000 waiting lists. Or yeah, I mean, it, it's an important announcement. Those things are really necessary. Um, our beloved chair, Phil Williams, had a letter in The Age the other day. And what she drew attention to is that it's it's great that uh, the government does recognise how important it is that people are able to age in place, that they provide this kind of service. But what benefit is a home care package if you can't afford a house? Like, what, what benefit yeah. is the home care package to the rapidly growing numbers of elderly people in private rental, mm. um, pensioners who are paying 70% of their income in rent, um, who, are, who face eviction for, for no reason at any time on 120 days notice. Um, you can't age in place if your landlord might just turf you out any time and you can't really afford uh, what you need anyway. So without some sort of national strategy on, on housing for the age, uh, mm. the, you know, it's almost like creating a two-tiered system where people who can afford yeah. their own homes, will be able to age in place. Uh, and the, the consequences yeah. for everyone else are, are really negative. And the benefits are already kind of, uh, the benefits are allocated towards those that are already better off, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I mean, it's also quite strongly gendered because we see again and again that older women are less likely to own their own homes than older men. Yeah. Do you have any stats around how many um, people in Australia reach retirement owning a home? Uh, I don't. I mean, I can say that in Victoria, at least, it's well documented that older people, people over 55, are the fastest growing section of the private rental market. Mm, so, And wow. that's been the case for quite some time. So it seems like there's an ongoing trend uh, in a growing population and, a, and an ageing population that more and more people yeah, of retirement age or of, you know, late, late working age uh, don't own their own homes. Wow. I, did, I had no idea that that was the case. Yeah. And what, so what, are the, what kind of options are available to them? You've already mentioned residential villages and residential um, parks. Well, I mean, the, I guess the most common options are to go into private rental, uh, and we all know what that's like. Um, you know, you, you might get a, year, a lease for a year. Um, if you're lucky, at the end of that year, maybe the landlord turfs you out. Maybe they have a better investment option. Maybe their accountant says they can get better tax benefits doing something else. Mm. Um, you know... If you ask for repairs, then it's probably more likely that your landlord is going to turf you out at the end of that year. Um, mm. you, again, your, your rent is going to be a massive percentage of your income. Uh, the Sorry, what's it called? The Rental Affordability Index just came out again, again demonstrating yeah. that there are no affordable properties for people on Newstart. Uh, and just negligible affordable properties for people on the pension. Mm, that's from Anglicare, that report. Yeah, that's and, right. Um, yeah, it showed, just showed what we talked about so often in this program, that people simply can't afford rent yeah, on, so on benefits. I, I think they, they – sorry, I haven't seen the – I'm not clear on the latest statistics. They find something like, you know, 1% of, of properties are suitable for someone on an age pension, and it turns mm. out to be, you know – one of the two beds in the shed and the you know the driveway out the back or something like mm. that. And it's between Unidata and Alice. Springs. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Mm. Um, the the what, what Hag has always said is the best option for older people is public housing. Um, it is affordable. It's capped at twenty five percent of your income. Uh, it's it provides security of tenure. Um, it's it's modifiable if you have you know I mean newer units are designed with universal design standards, so you'll be able to get a wheelchair in there or, or whatever you might need as you age. Um, and if you need to make changes to it as you age, they'll, they'll accommodate that. Um, social housing, less desirable, but, you know, better than private rental for most people. Um, 
Could you just explain the difference between public housing and social housing? Yeah. So, I mean, the short version is that public housing is owned by the government and social housing is owned by not-for-profit organisations that, that manage uh, what they call affordable or social housing. Yeah, right. Except um, I think it's worth adding, though, that a lot of the social housing that they own was public housing virtually mm-hmm. given to them by the oh, government. Yeah. So yep. they're cutting back on it. Yeah. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, other than that, I mean, there's a dwindling stock of independent living units, which were an option for older people at one point. But, uh, you know, I, I might have my details wrong, but basically with a program that was funded up through the 80s to provide low-cost accommodation for older people, funding went away. Um, there's still quite a lot of people. There must be probably, you know, thousands of people in Victoria who still live in these units. But there's no there's no funding for them. There's no money for repairs. The The quality is dwindling. The value of the land is now much greater than than any benefit that the the provider is getting from, you know, keeping a, a handful of crumbling units for older mm. people there. Um, so and is yeah. there anything preventing those providers from just selling up and no, doing something else no, with that land? No, no, it's oh more and more common that they're selling up and doing something yeah, with that that's, land. That's the worst part. Of it. So you pick public housing, you give it to these groups to run a social housing, in the end they often flog it off anyway. Mm. And so, what's the experience for the um, for the elderly living in that social housing? Is it similar? Similarly, kind of um, uh, financially affordable as so it's public not, housing. It's not as affordable as public housing. So the difference is in public housing, you pay twenty five percent of your income, uh, and you don't get any rent assistance from the federal government if you would otherwise be eligible. Uh, in social housing, well, I guess there's different types, but the most common type for our, our members and clients is that you pay thirty percent of your income uh, plus all of your rent assistance. Mm. Um, so thirty percent is the the figure that's that's generally given for what, where you're in rental stress. So it's it's basically capped at the exact level that will that will put you on the on the borderline <laughs> of of rental stress. Um, so wow. not not quite as affordable, but much preferable to private rental. And is it more available? Like, is there more of it for people to access? Uh, mm. Well, that's probably hard to answer. There's definitely more public housing than there is social housing in Victoria. Still, I would think by quite a way. <laughs> Um, but vacancies seem to come up in social housing more often. Because yeah. there's huge waiting lists for public housing, right? Uh, and for social housing as well. Yeah. So there's a Victorian housing... So well, they've amalgamated the list now, haven't they? So it's the same list. Well, you should definitely talk more to April about this when she's in there because <laughs> she's much more across this stuff than I am. But, yeah, I understand that they've amalgamated the list now and there's a lot of problems, um, practical problems from our point of view about how that's mm-hmm. being administered or, or how accountable or transparent it is. Well, what the question we've asked and we've not got the answer to is that if you get to the top and social housing offers you, because social housing will often only take people that considers can pay the rent, can meet the rent. So mm-hmm. if you get to the top, near the top, and you look pretty risky financially, they're likely to overlook you. But if you're overlooked by them, then what happens to you? Do you go to the bottom or do you... Do you yeah. go to the next public housing? Yeah, who, yeah look, I, yeah. I have no idea. Again, April knows much more about those practical issues about how the waiting lists and how allocations work and things like that. And if you want to pay 25% and wait for public housing and you reject a social housing offer, what how's that impact you as well? I mean, there's well, all those yeah. questions that we don't know the answer to. Yeah. yeah. Deeply flawed system at the best of times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, there was one item in the... Um, in the budget, uh, Shane, um, 
Victorian, this is just all I'm reading from the Herald Sun, so it's pretty reliable, I would think. Uh, Victorian housing and homeless services will share in $1.6 billion of federal cash set aside for a new national partnership over four years. It gives certainty to providers with the state government to match the allocation through a recent agreement. Budget papers show the funding is ongoing indexed and is expected to improve, quote, improved access to affordable, safe and sustainable housing. Nationally, $7.2 billion will be spent on housing over five years with an additional $621 million to tackle homelessness. Now, where's all that money going? Uh, <laughs> you're going to have to ask Scott Morrison that one. <laughs> yeah. So they, they want to improve access to affordable, safe and sustainable housing. So, But they're talking about social housing rather than well, public housing, who right? knows? No one knows. Exactly, that's <laughs> right. Because there seems to be no... Well, are they building any new other than the, the places that are currently being taken over by the private sector and they're putting some public housing back? There's no new public housing going anywhere. That I, I think that's right. Uh, I'd be surprised uh, yeah. if there was. Not that we don't need it much. Of course. It's shocking, no, yeah. No. Yeah. One of the a woman called Claire Hanson. Do you know Claire Hanson? No, I don't. Um, she's a tenant at Ascot Vale Estate, and they had a recent. Uh, they've got a and it works out well as an acronym. Save Ascot Vale Estate, which actually the acronym is Save. <laughs> um, and um, they had a recent rally where she spoke, and um, just some of the things she said that I think are, are really important. She said everyone is three steps from homelessness. Unemployment, family breakdown or a poor decision can all lead to homelessness. Nobody believes it could happen to them, but it can and does, etc. I was very lucky. I was thrown a lifeline. We were all thrown a lifeline, etc. I'll admit to being nervous when I first moved here. Like untold thousands, I too was a victim of misinformation about public housing estates. The press, the government and the big end of town, indeed people who have never been here, would have it that public housing estates are riddled with crime, daily violence, drug dealers, drug addicts, alcoholics and constant serious trouble. The people who believe this have never been here. The mis- this misconception and misinformation are, are endemic and also completely untrue. I have lived in some pretty fancy suburbs, so I feel well qualified to make a comparison and dispel the myths about public estates. Indeed, it is quite the opposite. I feel safer here than anywhere else I've lived. When I lived in private housing, I never met my neighbours, never knew their names. Here I know so many people. We all do. We look after each other. We care for each other. The sense of community here is overwhelming. So that's sort of... Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really common experience of public housing. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. my dad recently moved into public housing and that's his experience as well, you know. He knows much more people than he ever has in his neighbourhood. Yeah, yeah, but amazingly, the Herald Sun doesn't often run stories about how friendly the people in Poland <laughs> are. No, no, this, 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 this report's in the red flag, so... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask. So yeah. you probably can't trust it, of course. <laughs> uh, so there you are. But uh, um, she goes on to say the Andrews State Government wants this land. They want to sell it to private investors. They want to build tall towers and pack in as many private tenants as they can. Right now, they are being rather quiet about Ascot Vale because there's an election coming up but don't be fooled, etc. Um, and she says, the social housing the government keeps talking about is not public housing. I have tried and tried to get certain politicians and political representatives to say the word public. So, <laughs> so far, I've had no success. So be assured, if this estate is demolished, it will be it will be 90% or more private. We will all be moved on to who knows where and probably won't be coming back. Our wonderful community will be torn apart. Despite words to the contrary, we've been given no real assurance we'll be coming back. We will probably never see each other again. And then oh, they've got a series of demands, but yeah, the the um, 
so it's pretty pretty interesting stuff. I mean, yeah, and like, of course the the social impacts of of that um, extreme on the individuals, especially when you reach an older age. I imagine feeling part of a community is extremely mm. important for your well being. Yeah, I got to go down to um, the food bank at uh, the Barclay Street high rise in uh, Brunswick the other week. Uh, you know, where week in week out, there's a dozen people, mostly older people themselves, who are doing incredible amounts of volunteer work to to make sure there's enough food for for people in the building. Mm. And it, it really exemplified that spirit of of community, looking out for each other and sharing mm-hmm. that you're talking about. Yeah, well, they the the rally made a number of demands, which most of which I think you'd totally disagree with, um, Shane and uh, Eugenia. I'm sure you would definitely oppose them, and Gab would. They are the Andrews State government should immediately rescind its plans to privatise public housing in Victoria. Sadly, it's going ahead, isn't it? I mean, they've started to they've moved people out of some of the states, and yeah, I mean, one, and one of the effects of that is that it's much harder now for people who for people who are at risk of homelessness or who are homeless to get into public housing because the any, any vacancies are prioritised for people who are being shuffled around to make room for redevelopments and privatisation. And the waiting lists are, have blown out completely. We're, we're finding it almost impossible to place people in public housing in, in mm. some of those key areas. Yeah. yeah. So it's, the next one is public housing stock should be significantly expanded to meet demand. Well, that's something that's a bit outrageous, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Just outrageous, outrageous and necessary. <laughs> right. Existing public housing should be properly maintained and redeveloped only where necessary and in a way that is least disruptive to the lives of tenants. Any redevelopment of public housing that does occur should, should happen in close consultation with public housing tenants at local residents and should not involve Did you just say any, consultation? I did say that. Um, and should not involve any privatisation. The needs of tenants and local residents should come before the interests of profit-making. Good heavens. <laughs> this, this woman... Incendiary. Oh. <laughs> she should be flogged. You should have uh, her on the show. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, we, we should. Um, but again, that, that does make sense. But um, it comes back also, that point about consultation, though you raise, Eugenia, up till the time when Barry Pullen, a state minister, abolished it, Every estate had a, a worker paid for by the government, a, to, a, a mm. state worker who cooperated with residents, etc. And that's something that was critically important at the time. Yeah. Yeah. What a fantastic idea. Yeah. 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 But didn't always agree with how the government thought the public housing should be run. No, that's right. They, well, that's that why they were axed. Um. <laughs> would that? Do you think that would help with some of the issues you're talking? You were talking about at the start of um, our conversation, where um, residents find it hard to get improvements made and issues fixed if there was some sort of somebody at each estate Oh, I think it'd organize. be great to go back to a, a state-based worker model. Yeah, that was that seemed like it was a fantastic system. That's a yeah. bit before my time. Yeah. <laughs> well, also before your time and just in my time because I was very young. <laughs> but um, the, the housing minister, the housing commissioner, was then called, actually had its own construction authority and they yeah, used right. to construct mm. their own houses and mm. train apprentices and all sorts of things. So wow. Imagine if that happened now and you actually, I mean, the, if you talk about jobs and growth, you could imagine yeah. the jobs mm. and growth in, in you know, organisation that constructed housing, yeah. public housing and yeah. trained workers. Yeah. Mm. <sighs> Oh, silly thoughts. We have to think about our international competitiveness, remember? Um, oh, that's right. I've got yeah. that all. This yeah. is the kind of thinking that led you to that union strike. Well, that's right. Last yeah. week I, when I got duped going to this march <laughs> and found I was affecting Australia's investment uh, reputation. Uh, well, can I just say uh, I was quite proud as the uh, as one of the ASU delegates at HAG that the office was closed down last week for the Change the Rules rally. <laughs> Everyone came out. Uh, I was very happy. Just note that, Eugenia, office closed down. They get money, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just, just make a note there, would you? <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.
<laughs> that was a big admission, let me tell you. <laughs> uh, just to finish just this, this article going on, um, she says Mooney Valley Council has justified the redevelopment by painting the estate, the estate as a violent place that locals are scared to walk through, etc., which she denies, but the council council. But I don't want to cause a ruction between various pub, um, public groups, NGOs, but she says the, the Victorian Public Tenants Association... Um, has supported the government's plans. Is that the case? Uh, I'm not really sure. Um, you might have to ask the VPTA about that. Yeah, yeah, we may have to. Um, but cause they say they should release a public statement denouncing it, etc. But just that she says it. And of course, there is an ad here for, and they've got other information here as well. But there's a, a stop a stop Labor's public housing sell-offs. Um, um, next, it's May 26, next Saturday week. Um, at noon at the Walker Street Northcote Estate, so people should get along to that. It's supported by a number of the groups organised. But um, so there's a rally at noon Saturday week at the Walker Street Estate, and I've been given a separate piece of paper uh, that tells me there's also on May 30th, which is what day is that? I could work it out. If the 26th is a Saturday, the 30th is a Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. It's a Wednesday. Next Wednesday, I don't know when it is, two weeks' time. <laughs> Wednesday, two weeks. Um, at Northcote Town Hall, there's a Make Renting Fair campaign and, re- and it's uh, trying to seek reforms to the Residential Tenancies Act. And the speakers will be Lydia Thorpe, who, of course, was the um, MP elected for Northcote last year or mm-hmm. early this year, maybe, whenever it was, almost last year, I think. Mark O'Brien from the Tenants' Union and Anne Martinelli from Efficiency Campaigner Environment Victoria, she is. So um, that meeting on May 30, we'll get time to talk about that before. It's at 6pm at Northcote Town Hall on that mm. night. Uh, well, can I also plug that uh, HAG has a general meeting coming up on the 24th, which I think right. is maybe Thursday mm-hmm. week. I'm uh, not quite sure about that. Um, we're going to be talking, mainly we're going to be consulting with our members about strategy for the organisation in the in the year ahead and with the state election coming up, what our priorities should be. Um, but it's also my favourite of our general meetings of the year because it's the one where staff bring in homemade soup uh, as, <laughs> as lunch for everyone, popular popular with both staff and members. I was going to say the time, a year or so, about a year ago now or so, when I chaired a meeting for you to get the well, committee back It wasn't back quite together. as festive back then. <laughs> no, but uh, the, the, the dinner wasn't too bad, but I didn't see all the soup no, coming in. you missed the soup. Um, but maybe I'll give out the, the number for HAG now if you want to come to the meeting or if you want to get some advice about your housing situation. Yep. Um, so it's nine six five four seven three eight nine, uh, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter and and what have you. All right, repeat that number again because it is get your pens. Yeah, get your pen. It's nine six five four seven three eight nine. Nine six. Okay, there we are. Um, I've got some good news for you in a minute about housing too, by the way. But find it hard to believe. Having, having, having mentioned that. That number, I um, there is a number here for that meeting at um, the next the rally on Saturday week. Uh, there's a contact number if people want more information, and it's 0433467771. So I'll repeat that again. Now people have got the pen, same they found the pen again. Hmm. 0433467771 for information on that. Um, so there you are. But the good news is, um, Shane, you'll be thrilled to hear. Well, all these problems about public no money for public housing etc mm-hmm. uh 
phew, this is, this is good news. Fears the budget would include changes to negative gearing or capital gains tax have been unfounded. Well, that is good. I mean, those are the major subsidies for housing in this country. So (laughs) happy to hear nothing will change there. That'll that'll keep rents down. Yeah, it's it's worked so well. Oh, terrific, yeah. Um, Yes, Morrison taking a largely hands-off approach, the Herald Sun tells us. Um, It offered little in the way of announcements for homeowners, investors or prospective buyers. That's not so good, is it? But anyway, with much of the real estate focus on measures to increase housing supply... Um, it's, yeah. On that point we raised earlier, by the way, about um, older people being in home care, mm-hmm. um, the estate industry actually came out and opposed it, saying it was against the interests of trying to get older people to downsize and make their properties available to, for them to sell. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And uh, they said this was against the con- you know, idea that we, you know, we don't want empty nesters or whatever. So what, the, 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 the real estate industry is kind of saying, like, from each according to their ability to, to each according to their need? Is that the, the line they're I'm taking? I'm suggesting it's part of their campaign to make housing affordable. Yeah, that's, that's right. <laughs> so many things can be explained with that tagline, can't they? They certainly can. We're getting near the end of the program. Anything else you wanted to chat about? Um, in the next four minutes. Well, look, I mean, you mentioned the Make Renting Fair campaign. The state government, as you know, launched a, a very intense and lengthy review of the Residential Tenancies Act over the last few years. Getting very close to the end of the the sitting period of this parliament, mm. and there's no information about when those le- changes might actually be legislated. Um, so we're going to keep an eye on that. Uh, but those forums and that campaign are really important to keep the pressure up. Um, Daniel Andrews made some extremely vague suggestions. You wouldn't exactly call them promises about <laughs> improvements for renters when the Northcote by election was on. Uh, and and again, nothing has come of that. So. Might be worth talking to your local MP if you're into that sort of thing. Ask them when we're going to see those changes. Mm. Yeah, because totally. a lot of people we know, I mean, gave evidence to that inquiry as well. They went in and, mm-hmm. you know, and people who were in, in residential, in public housing or want mm-hmm. public housing or whatever. But, yeah, it's quite strange, isn't it, that it's um, when they don't release them, you start to wonder, don't you? Well, the, I mean, yeah. they, they've said that they're going to legislate. We're just, we, we need to see it. It needs to happen. Yeah, yeah all right. Shane, thanks for coming in and cheering people up. Yeah, no worries. (laughs) Always happy. (laughs) It's been great. (laughs) Eugenia, we've we've done it again. And uh, (laughs) next week we've got... um, Next week we've got... I'm pretty sure we've got Dave Sweeney coming on to talk about some energy issues. And particularly, um, we want to talk about that issue of, of, of... mineral companies or resource companies walking away and leaving the cost of rehabilitation to the community generally and with a couple of examples up in PNG and West Papua recently where we've talked where we've talked about companies that are now shoveling their waste into the ocean and uh, saying it's the only thing they can do so we'll talk to Dave about some of those issues Wonderful. As, yeah and we might even in the next week or two get Kate Shaw in because Kate's report on the Kensington Estates come out in mm. which she points out that they got it absolutely dirt cheap the land, and mm-hmm. um, and I'm sure the current the current uh, estates being raised and given to the private sector are probably getting them very cheaply as well. Mm. Okay, that's it. Um, Shane, look, you're the guest. Thank Gab for doing a wonderful job. And oh, thanks, Gab. Top work. <laughs> thanks for having me. Okay. Thanks, Shane.